Good morning. So before we look at our scripture passage today, uh, I want to remind you that we are in a teaching series that is taking us through the summer. We're looking at the first half of the book of Acts, and the title of this series is Sent. The idea being that you and I are a people who are supposed to live for a story that's bigger than ourselves, live for a story where we're not the centerpiece of it all, where life is something that we don't demand revolves around us, not because of rules about it, but because that's not where we find fulfillment. That's not what life is about. That is too small of existence, no matter how amazing you are, to make life about yourself. That we are a part of something larger than that. And it's in living daily into that larger story that God sends us out in the world to do that we find joy and purpose and meaning. And so this is a series where we're trying to talk about that. How are you and I supposed to live with purpose and with meaning, not just here together, but seven days a week in Austin or wherever we find ourselves throughout the week? Now, to, before we look at the scripture passage for today from Acts chapter 4, I want to remind you where we were last week because the two of them are tied together. Um, last week what we talked about was, uh, in Acts 3, uh, a story of healing. It's a story, if you were here, where uh, two disciples after Pentecost, Peter and John, are walking to the temple. They're walking to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, and they come to this spot called the Beautiful Gate. And the Beautiful Gate was a place where people who had different needs uh, would often gather and ask folks for money, for alms, and Peter and John encounter this one man who has not been able to walk for a long time, and he asked them for money, and Peter responds by saying, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give you, in the name of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And this individual hadn't been able to walk for years, takes Peter's hand and stands up, and as the scripture said last week, begins walking and leaping and praising God. Well, this draws the attention of a lot of people. And people gather around Peter and John and this man, and they hear that Peter has healed this person, not because he has this amazing power, but because he's healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that story um, gets to the temple authorities, to the leadership. Now, the temple authorities are people that, as we've read the Gospels or during Lent, during the series, we're in Journey to the Cross. We read about Caiaphas. We read about some of the Sanhedrin, the chief uh, priests and, um, and, and Pharisees who had Jesus arrested when Jesus was teaching and healing because it was outside of their authority. It was outside of their control. It was threatening to them. And this all of a sudden starts happening again. Weeks later, Jesus is dead. And that inconvenient part that they can't find his body uh, to prove to the disciples that he, wasn't, he was still dead. They were saying he was raised again. They couldn't find him. And now these disciples are doing the same thing he did. They're teaching, and they're teaching about God's love, and they're healing people that are broken. And so the same people, Caiaphas and the chief priests, at the end of chapter 3, they get together and have Peter and John arrested. They have them thrown into prison where they stay there for a long time. But as we saw with Jesus, they don't know what to do with them because the crowds have seen what's happened. They've seen this miracle, and they can't just have them punished because the crowds are on Peter and, and, and John's side and on the side of these healings. So at the end of chapter 3, they bring Peter and John out in the beginning of chapter 4, and they tell them, you better stop. You better stop, or the same fate that happened to Jesus could happen to you. Now, this isn't an idle threat. They saw what these folks had the authority and power to do to Jesus. And so this is a very real threat. And at that point, they release Peter and John from prison under threat of do not teach in the name of Jesus anymore. 
And that's what takes us to the passage that we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. After they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit, through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that this morning, no matter who we are, no matter how we walk in here, that we would hear your living word, which would teach us and mold us and shape us and transform us into the men and women, into the community that you have designed and created us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I first became a Christian, probably 15 years ago or so, this is not a passage of scripture I would have been naturally drawn to. It was not a passage of scripture I would have been naturally drawn to because what I wanted was people who just had bold faith. They didn't need to pray for bold faith. They just had bold faith. I wanted leaders that just knew the right answer, knew the thing to do, didn't give in to threats, didn't give in to power plays, didn't have any questions or doubts. In every situation, they knew truth, they were committed to truth, they would speak truth, and the consequences just went wherever they needed to go. Leaders like that is what I was drawn to. So I would have skipped a passage like this and moved to the part where that's what Peter and John do where they just start preaching and teaching and healing, where it costs them things. They don't care, man, because they're following Jesus, and they're about this kind of radical discipleship, and it costs Peter his life in the end, but he gives his life for something that is bigger than himself. Um, That's the stuff I would have been drawn to. Let's skip the praying, the discerning part, the listening part, and let's just kind of do what we know that leaders are supposed to do. Let's just kind of stand for the things that we're supposed to stand for. was drawn to that kind of faith, and to those kinds of leaders. As I get older, I realize that as one of the members of our staff said in staff meeting this week, it's a fine line between boldness and foolishness. It's a very thin line. And usually we don't recognize we've crossed that line until we're on the other side and are looking back. And that indeed to stop and pray, to stop and listen To stop and be together in community and discern what does it even mean to be bold is a bold act in and of itself. That's the question this week as I've been thinking about this passage of what does it mean to be bold in our faith? I mean, again, does it just mean speaking and and demanding and having the right opinion and knowing that everyone else should be like us? I think there is something about being bold in our witness that does demand that we speak and that we act. But we're also in a time when, in 2016, our culture is increasingly just sort of turning the volume switch down on the church and what we're about, no matter how loud and our voices become. 
I've wondered what it means to have bold faith in this day and in this age and in this culture and in this country. And maybe like many of you, I have been trying to process my faith through the events that have taken place in Orlando over the last week. What does it mean to have bold faith in times like this? Now certainly one part of having bold faith, as we said, is speaking and acting and doing what it is that we know that God has called us to do. And so what are some of the things this week that we can just be able to say that we should be able to, everyone in this room as followers of Jesus, just unite around? Well, I think there are certain things that we need to be able to say. There are certain things that we need to be able to do. There are certain things that we need to be able to claim. First is, is that an act like we saw in Orlando is very clearly being motivated by both a sense of desiring to strike terror as well as a desire to express hatred and bigotry. And that we as a people must not in the any moment flinch in standing against both of those things. Now first off, when we talk about this idea of uh, an act of violence being done in terror in the name of religion, it wasn't our religion, Christianity, that was called in to question in this. It's not this our Christianity that was seen in this instance to be the religion that someone used to act out in violence. But I think it is incumbent upon people of faith to say that no matter how we understand God, such an act cannot be what God is about. That such an act of using God in any way to, conv- to, to condone murder or violence for any reason in his name is a misunderstanding. It is an incorrect way of understanding who God is and what he's got. It's not open to interpretation. It's not my truth versus your truth versus how I see it versus how you see it, which we specialize about in our world. Well, this is my way of understanding it. Wrong. This is not possible to live in alignment with God and see that God could in any way demand that his people act in such a way. That is, a, that is out of alignment and wrong and broken. And the exact same way, To have an act that targets any group, any group at all, for whatever reason. And this group did. This this act was targeted at a very specific group, the LGBT community. And it is incumbent upon every person of faith to say that there is absolutely no way that God could be associated with such evil. And that we stand united with the LGBT community. That we stand united in prayer in the face of this act. That we stand united in a desire to serve. And that we lead to listen to their voices in this time. And that those kind of acts and that kind of prayer and that kind of call, uh, we've seen little examples of this week. We have seen in the midst of this horrible situation some of the most beautiful acts of kindness that we often see in these kind of situations. Maybe you saw... Um, where people lined up for as many as eight hours in Orlando afterwards to donate blood where there was need. People of, of, of all different backgrounds uh, standing together in this act of love to combat this, this terrible sign of hate. That's a good thing that we should be um, lifting that up and we should be a part of that. Some of you may have seen also the example of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, which doesn't open on Sundays. And I continue to pray that they would see the wisdom to open on Sundays so that I can eat there. After church, as I drive by it every Sunday 
on the way home that they are closed on Sundays, that, that employees of Chick-fil-A in Orlando violated their own company policy by going in and opening their stores on Sundays and taking thousands of sandwiches to first responders, to victims' families, to people who are waiting to donate blood and just gave it away for free. Just, you know, not changing the world, but just showing acts of love and mercy and compassion that were needed in the face of this evil. Those are the kinds of things that we should be about. Or maybe you've heard about the employees for JetBlue, the employees who had uh, a flight from Maine to Orlando, and on their flight was an elderly woman of 87 who was traveling by herself because as they learned as she got on the plane, one of the victims of the pole shooting was her 20-year-old grandson, Luis, and she was traveling by herself down for his service. And in the midst of that flight from Maine to Florida, they, employees, went to the back of the plane and invited anyone who wanted to to write a note or a prayer or a card that they could give to this woman at the end. And at the end of the flight, they had page upon page upon page upon page of love, of words of love and prayers. And you know what it's like when you fly. When you land on the ground, everyone's immediately getting up and grabbing their bag and trying to get off the plane as fast as they can. The employees of JetBlue on this flight said that it was the slowest exit that they had ever seen because almost every single person passed by this elderly woman and stopped and hugged her and spoke to her and prayed with her and that the plane itself observed a moment of silence for all the victims but specifically for Luis on this flight these are the acts of love we see these are the acts of love that we must be about these are the acts of love that we must put into service in times like this we must be a people who respond by prayer as we tried to do this morning, that prayer is not a, an absence of action, as we see here in Acts 4 in our passage today, that we must be a people who commit to understanding that if we really prayed and really committed ourselves as a people, we could see more of an impact than any politician or political party could do on its own, because the ground underneath our feet, as we see here, could actually shake and lead us in a new direction. See, prayer in times like this is a lot more about listening than it is about speaking. It's not more about asking, Lord, what do you want to do? Show us your way of what it means to follow you in these times. And I would ask you today to consider how desperately we need that in our world today. Because right now there's a lot of voices yelling and speaking and pointing the finger and blaming. And I'm not certain who's actually listening anymore. Maybe the best way to sum up part of what's so difficult, and it certainly has been dispiriting for me this week, um, was summed up by Stephen Colbert, late night talk show host, uh, who has been very clear in the past about his Christian faith um, and how that influences what he does and what he says and how he tries to conduct his, his show and, and, and himself. Stephen Colbert in this video went around of many of the late night talk show hosts and other celebrities that spoke out about this, but Colbert said that one of the hardest parts in the midst of all of this is he said there's kind of this national script that we've just learned. And everybody kind of knows it. And everyone sort of knows their part. We kind of all know what the president's going to say. We kind of all know what Congress is going to do and what they're not going to do. We kind of all know what the NRA is going to say. We kind of all know what the gun control advocates are going to say. We kind of all know what ISIS are going to say. That everyone sort of plays their part and raises their voices and makes their points. It's a script that we've become all too familiar with. And he said, and the depressing part is, we're just going to do it again. We're just going to replay it again and again. We all play our part. We all really, really mean it. We really have convictions. And nothing changes. And we just do it again 
we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. What does it mean to try to rewrite the script when it seems like more people are interested in their position being right than the script being rewritten? What does that look like? I mean, it was just a year ago yesterday that the shooting in Charleston took place at Mother Emanuel Church. And here at Covenant was one of the few times, at least since I've been here, that we changed our service completely. We said, we got to talk about this. we got to wrestle with this. Yeah, here we are again. Same script being played out and all the people doing their parts and speaking really loud and passionately and pointing fingers and telling us who's to blame. It's going to happen again. We're just going to keep playing the script, Colbert said, again and again and again. What changes? And we're all convinced we know who's to blame for why it doesn't change. But it's just not us. I wonder if there's a reason that we were given this scripture passage for this day. Because the disciples are faced with an incredibly difficult time in this passage. Time of great stress, of great strain, of great questions. And their boldness doesn't begin with speaking, but it begins with gathering. It doesn't begin by blaming, but it begins with listening. Listening to each other. Listening in prayer for the voice of God. And asking what it is we should do. Friends, that is a significant act that I believe we need to be called to. Because in the cacophony of noise and Twitter accounts and accusation and the blame game, I believe that Christians ought to be leaders in a different way of being and doing and responding to these kind of acts of violence. Because what does it mean to be a Christian? What are the disciples reacting like this for? Well, they're doing this because at our core, beyond the institutions and beyond the denominations and beyond the traditions, what are we at our core? What we are at our core as followers of Jesus are people who say we need a Savior. That is what Christianity is about, is saying that we are in need of being saved. That's what we're singing about. That's why we're clapping today, right? Is that Jesus has come and he is the Messiah and we need that. Well, when we say that we need a Savior, what we're saying in that, and I hope we're all aware of that, is that we are not perfect people. What we're saying is that we live in a world and we have been inundated in a culture that insists on being heard because everyone's so special and everyone's so unique and everyone's voice needs to be heard all the time and everyone is so insistent on being heard that nobody's listening anymore. That that is the posture that more and more people are taking in the world around us and the volume goes up and nothing changes. And our posture at a base level is totally different because we're saying, we're not perfect. Our actions are not perfect. Our convictions are not perfect. Our beliefs may not be perfect. That doesn't mean we don't have beliefs and convictions, but it means in all of this, we know that God is God and we are not God. And that as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, that we see in a mirror dimly. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you should be aware of this. I am a really smart person. I don't know if you're aware of this. I am full of wisdom. I have wisdom, and I have intelligence, and I have a lot of opinions on a lot of different things. There are a few things I'm kind of wishy-washy about, going, I don't know if I really see that right, but there's a lot of stuff that I really, really am smart about. I also believe as a follower of Jesus 
that in the midst of that, that there will be a time when I will be face to face with the Lord and the Lord is going to look at me and a lot of who I am and go, you really missed that one. I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't one of the wishy-washy things. This is one of the things I really knew what I was doing. He's like, yeah, you missed it. You see in a mirror dimly. That's what being a Christian is about. It's about, it's about understanding that we're trying to follow Jesus, and yet we always have a limited and incomplete understanding of what that even looks like. Not just in the things we think we're confused on, but on everything. There should be a built-in humility to us that is constantly asking the question, this is what I believe, and I could be wrong. We should be leaders and finding ways to balance in a world that keeps speaking louder and louder and louder and pointing fingers and blaming. We should be leading in a different way of being that doesn't insist on how special we are and how right we are and how everyone needs to do it like us, but that we balance speaking those convictions by listening and learning and questioning. And I believe if we want to see the script around us actually being rewritten, it's going to take leadership like that to make it happen. What does that look like? Well, in the midst of our culture yelling and pointing fingers and everyone following the script and doing what they're supposed to do and observing moments of silence and everything else, in the midst of that, I caught a little glimpse this week of how it can be different. It was back to this late night talk show host, Stephen Colbert. Now, people sent around these clips, and you might have gotten them, of what, you know, Fallon or what Colbert or what different people kind of said in response to this, and there were some wonderful things and good things that were said. What most people didn't see was what Colbert did after his two-minute monologue. What he did in his show, if you saw it on Monday night, was he had Bill O'Reilly come on his show, and the two of them spent over half of their time together talking talking about this event in Orlando, talking about what happened, talked about how they view it. Now, if you know Stephen Colbert, he would be more on the liberal side of things, and he's pretty outspoken about that. Bill O'Reilly, if you don't know Bill O'Reilly, would be on the opposite side of that. Bill O'Reilly is a commentator, he's a Christian as well, and is uh, somebody who uh, would represent a more conservative viewpoint. And the two of them got together and they started talking about Orlando and talking about what happened. And it followed the script to a T at the beginning. Colbert started by, as the host, saying, Bill, you know, I'm glad you're here. Tell us how you see what's taking place here. And Bill O'Reilly gave what many people believe is the right way of understanding this. He said, well, I think that this is an example of uh, Islamic extremism. I think this is an idea of jihad. I think we need to understand the threat that we're under. I think we need to see that as the core and ask ourselves as a people how we're going to respond to that. Stephen Colbert took a position that many people take, which is to say, I don't see that that's not the framework through which I see it. I think this is about a cycle of violence in our culture. I think this is about uh, access to automatic weapons. I think that this is about something that gun control could help with. And as soon as he said that, Bill O'Reilly, as the national script always goes, goes, oh, you liberals, and you're talking about this. This isn't about gun control. I'm tired of hearing this. I'm tired about that being the first response. And the crowd did what they're supposed to do following the script. They started booing. Bill O'Reilly, booing his position on gun control. They were there because, I mean, they're there for the Stephen Colbert late night show, right? They mostly agree with Colbert and his viewpoint. And it was all following the script of what it's supposed to do that'll lead to nothing except self-righteousness and blame. And at that moment, Stephen Colbert turned his chair to the audience and said, stop, stop. We have got to stop this. 
We have got to start listening to each other. We have got to find common ground. He turned back to Bill O'Reilly and said, I apologize, please continue. Now at that moment, I can promise you the ratings plummeted. Because at our core and our sensationalized culture, and we don't like to admit this, we would rather see people yelling and arguing and blaming, or we'd rather see a two-minute monologue and then have celebrities start firing water guns at each other and breaking eggs over each other's heads. Rather than watching two people have a pretty intense conversation on some very difficult issues. But for those who stayed in and tuned in, it was a fairly remarkable thing that we saw. Because... Bill O'Reilly went from this defensive position going, this isn't about the Second Amendment, you can't infringe on our rights and everything else, to acknowledging in his conversation with Colbert, who would want stricter gun control laws, to say, well, the Second Amendment, I guess, isn't really just this blanket license to do whatever you want to defend yourself. We don't allow, like, rocket-propelled grenade launchers in our homes. We don't allow flamethrowers. So there are limits to what this is. And so maybe we could have a conversation about where that line is. Do we really, could we have a conversation, and O'Reilly acknowledged maybe we could, about does somebody need eight automatic weapons in their homes that can fire around a second at somebody? Like, do you really need that for self-defense? Because unless the country of Romania is all about to invade your home and you're the only one there to defend it, that does seem like a lot. And he started listening and acknowledging, well, maybe we could talk about where that line is, or maybe Congress could talk about where, and you saw the needle move just a little bit. And in the same way, later in the conversation, Colbert said, well, you know, what about uh, the no-fly list? And this is something that, that you hear from the left more and more. Uh, if, if someone's on the no-fly list and yet we allow them to buy guns and that's not right. And Bill O'Reilly corrected Colbert, said that is a common misunderstanding. It's not about the no-fly list doesn't work that way that they're not permitted to work. And he explained to him the difference in, in the common misconceptions and how that functions. And Colbert was like, I didn't, I didn't quite realize all that. I honestly was sitting there going, I didn't have any understanding how that worked. We just heard that argument used so many different times that people start repeating. And the needle moved a little bit. Just a little bit. In 20 minutes. Because Stephen Colbert, I believe as a person of faith, didn't just say, how do we change the script? But he said, what if I'm the one that needs to do that? And the script that we see the disciples living here in Acts 4 is that the first thing we're supposed to do in times like this is to stop and to talk and to listen and to pray. Because here's the thing, friends, no matter who you are, no matter who you are here today, there are certain things that you believe and the will of God is 100% in alignment with what you believe. But for every single one of you here, there are certain things that you believe the will of God is not in alignment with what you believe and how you're living. And we need to not be waiting for somebody else to start listening to our viewpoint because we're so right. But we need to have the boldness of the disciples here who had conviction and spoke with strength and yet listened and asked for God to lead their path. question to you today is, is your faith that bold? It's tempting to believe that only, the only thing about having a bold faced faith is speaking and yelling and listening and knowing that you're right. There is a lower, deeper 
level of strength that can find the faith and the boldness to balance conviction with the need to learn and listen and grow. And if we are truly more interested in this script being rewritten than in terms of us being right, then that kind of leadership is needed now, today. And it can begin with us. Is your faith that bold? Are your convictions that strong? I pray to God that it might be so. That our world can be shaken as only the Holy Spirit can do. And a new tomorrow can be realized. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be bold enough in our faith to speak and listen, to speak what we believe and listen for the convictions of others, to be humble enough to realize that even on these central issues that we may not have all the answers. Lead us, guide us. May your Holy Spirit fill us and shake the ground so that this script that we are all too familiar with in this country might be thrown out and a total rewrite can begin. As people of faith, we believe this is possible. May the process begin with each of us. Help us to be bold enough to balance our convictions with those of others, so that we might hear your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.